You are entering the Freedom Hut. Late-breaking bombshell today. President Trump says that journalists broke off the record, a cardinal rule of journalism in order to get at him when it comes to his negotiations with Canada. We'll dive into that. And also, Sean Spicer, former White House press secretary, joins to talk about his book. I'll ask him all the important questions like, is the White House actually in trouble? And what was it like being made fun of on SNL? That and more coming up. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make Make no mistake. America. Ready. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. But I gave a totally off the record. You saw it. It said off the record. And I said something strong, but it's my belief. And they violated it. And they said they were violating it. It's unbelievable what's happening with the fake news. It's unbelievable. When you say off the record, that's a very, it's not a legal term, but it's a term of honor. So when I say off the record, here's the story, in order really to save time. I don't want to waste a lot of time. And then they say, they actually printed my off the record. They said... President Trump said, off the record, and then they go on to this. I said, this is a first. This is a first. These are very dishonorable people. But I said, in the end, it's okay, because at least Canada knows how I feel. So it's fine. Folks, welcome to the Bucks Action Show. I've, I've been telling you this was going to happen for a long time, that journalists would begin to, w- 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 journalists would just dispense with some of the, the, most, well, they would say, most sacred tenets of journalism. Um, That journalists would break off the record. Uh, And more specifically, I have said that journalists would blow sources in order to get at, and you've already seen that happen in some instances, not, not quite super high level just yet. But we've had journalists lie about sources recently to get at Trump, at CNN, where they said that somebody was not a source when he was the source, that's pretty bad. I'm telling you, they're going to blow sources just to get at Trump at some point. Somebody will speak to them, and then when it's in their interest to do so, they'll say, the person who told us this is. They will blow their own source if it hurts Trump. That's coming. According to the president, we already have a violation of off-the-record principle. Now, off-the-record, as the president stated there, is not a legally binding thing. It is, as he said, a term of honor. It is about ethics in journalism. Journalism as a profession only has a few things. No plagiarism, protect sources, and you know, off-the-record. I mean, there, there are some things that, that they all agree to, although there's no licensing for journalism, as I've pointed out. It's, it's really just, what's that uh, in Pirates of the Caribbean? It's not a rule. It's more like a guideline, the guy says. And that, that's certainly true for anything involving journalism, where you have a lot of, especially at the top echelons of the mainstream media, a lot of very slimy, dishonest people. And here's what ended up happening. Uh, Bloomberg had an interview with Trump, in the, in the, I believe, in the Oval Office. And he was talking to them about his negotiations, his very important economic negotiations that are going on right now over trade with our Canadian brothers and sisters to the north. Now, as much as... We all love Canadians, and we do. They are a different country, and we do have some issues of trade dispute with them. But, you know, it's within the family, but we got to straighten this out. 
And Trump spoke honestly, perhaps too honestly, to Bloomberg about this. And sure enough, the off-the-record comments about his negotiations with Canada got published. Here's what the Toronto Star uh, writes, uh, writes about this. In comments Trump wanted to be off the record, the U.S. To- uh, US president told Bloomberg News reporters on Thursday that he is not making any compromise at all in the talks with Canada, but that he cannot say this publicly because, quote, it's going to be so insulting they're not going to be able to make a deal. The president went on, here's the problem. If I say no, the answer is no. If I say no, then you're going to put that and it's going to be so insulting they're not going to be able to make a deal. I can't kill these people, Trump said, of the Canadian government. Off the record, Canada's working their ass off. And every time we have a problem with a point, I just put up a picture of a Chevrolet Impala, Trump said. The Impala is, a, is produced at the General Motors plant in Ontario. So Trump is saying they violated off the record in order to hit at him. Now, a, journal, a lot of journalists are scrambling now. I see this in social media. Oh, no, no, they, they wouldn't do There must be some mistake. There must be some mistake. I don't know. It doesn't sound like a mistake to me, folks. And this is why this is so important, because this is all, remember, we're, we're in the process of an evolution of how we think about how we discuss the media in this country, because Trump is breaking down the barriers to the truth. Trump is actually forcing them to have to stand and make their case to the American public without the usual echo chamber effect and, you know, somebody who will fight back. It's not a one-way street. It's not just offense all the time for the media. Now the media sometimes has to play defense. But they hate Trump, as you know. And they not only have dropped the pretense of objectivity when covering this presidency, now they're going even beyond partisan coverage to dropping the foundational rules of journalism to attack this president. Now that alone, you may say, Buck, that's not really... You know, I mean, I, I don't expect anything more from them. The journalists are a bunch of uh, a bunch of frauds anyway, and, and that's true. I, I can't argue with you there. But here's another part of this that is important for all of us to keep in mind. They were willing not just to dispense with essential, central principles of journalism here to hit Trump. They also were willing to harm U.S. national, sovereign, economic interests to do so. That's right, folks. This is a great example of how our own journos are willing to undercut our own president when it comes to negotiations that are going to help the American economy, the American worker, the American producer out there, and whether it's dairy or, you know, any number of these issues that are being negotiated right now between them. This is the economic equivalent of when Democrats were rooting against us in the Iraq war and in Afghanistan, too. You're going to see more of this. You're going to see efforts in the media to try to strengthen China's hand. We'll talk later about where the whole China trade war is right now. That's coming up later in the show. But you'll see the media trying to make efforts to to uh, bolster the Chinese case. Anything. They will take the side of anyone against this president. They don't care. And they will break any rule. They will do anything in order to get at this president. They just don't care about anything else. This is because they have a problem, my friends. They have a derangement. 
there is a very serious issue in journalism overall right now with a, a form of anti-Trump psychosis. It's really taken over people. I've been talking to friends about it in journalism this week. They say it's very real. They know people that just cannot be objective anymore. They, they, they are caught up in all these lies and conspiracies, and they're spreading these lies and conspiracies in ways that are completely reckless, unjustifiable. Uh, but, you know, this is, uh, this is a, quite a day. You know, the president, no, look, the president's going to figure this out. It's not, it's not, not the end of the world. It's not, you know, we're not about to lose a war because of this, but here's what Trump said about the deal with Canada. Play 19. And this week we're working on Canada. We're working on a lot of different things. Uh, Last week it was Mexico and this week it's Canada. And if we don't make a deal with Canada, that's just fine. Uh, But we'll see how it all works out. I say affectionately, we'll just have to tariff those cars coming in. That's a lot of money coming into the coffers of the United States. No, he's saying, look, we'll we'll figure it out one way or another. I mean, Trump is rolling with it, but I I want you to really remember this. You know, this this is a cardinal rule of journalism. This is this is central. You do not break off the record unless you have a really compelling, you know, really compelling reason to do so. And I don't know how this could be anything other than these journalists are like this story's too good to too good to sit on. We're gonna we're gonna quote the president. Remember Bloomberg, it's an American news media organization. They're gonna quote the president of the United States against his wishes, break trust with him, and assist the other side of the table in a negotiation that that affects the United States economy and American workers. That is what we are dealing with, folks. That is our own media. They are so quick to dispense with any any obligations to the American people and, and to patriotism. And then, you know, tomorrow they'll be, oh, the First Amendment, we're on the we're on the front lines of defending the First Amendment. Bull. They're on the front lines of being a bunch of preening crybabies who have one concern and one concern only, and that is themselves. Let's talk about who I think is running against uh against Trump in twenty twenty. That'll that's coming up. Stay with me. Folks, I, I know it sounds a little a little out there right now. I know people, they have scoffed at me uh, with my whole, the, the Democrats' ultimate master plan here is to run Hillary again. I know you, I know people think I'm crazy, but it makes sense. Look, they're going to say that, you know, think about it this way. It'll be a Hillary uh, Kamala Harris ticket. The idea being that, you know, Hillary brings the gravitas and the experience, all of the Hillary Clinton hacks and hangers on would then get into the positions in government that they think are duly owed to them and that Trump stole from them. Right. That will be the way that they view it. And (laughs) and then there'll be essentially a handover. Hillary doesn't have to do it for eight years, just has to do it for four. And then she writes the whole Clinton dynasty. She will have righted the great wrong of Trump's victory over her in 2016 when the election was stolen by the Ruskies. I, I know it sounds out there, but think, uh, Hillary and Kamala Harris together, 2020, I think that that right now is the most likely Democrat ticket. And for those of you 
who are are looking at me right now or listening to me right now, but looking up at the sky saying, wow, Buck must be, he must have weekenditis right now. He just wants to get out and party. He doesn't want to. For those of you who think that I've lost it, John Kerry, John Kerry uh, would not in a recent, uh, or rather in an upcoming Face the Nation interview with Margaret Brennan, was unwilling to rule out a 2020 White House run. John Kerry! He thinks he's going to get in the game again, folks. He does. You have to remember, we're not dealing with normal, rational people here, okay? We are dealing with people who are obsessed with their own brand. They're obsessed with how important they are, how necessary they are for government, you know, how much they've, They've contributed to America and how and they really think that America needs them. They they convince themselves of this. Because if they had to actually look at the way that they approach uh their office otherwise, it would be clear that it really benefits them more than anything else. And this is really all about them. This is an an exercise in extreme solipsism. Uh, remember, solipsism is when you are the center of the universe in your own mind. And that's certainly true of John Kerry. I, I think Hillary, she's there's a reason she's going to be out there. She's going to be fundraising for Democrats. There's nobody else to fill the void, folks. Nobody. I don't really think Michelle Obama wants to step in. And I think she's perfectly happy to be treated like uh, a rock star and, and the closest thing in America to royalty for the rest of her days. The Obamas have a very, among Democrat circles, a very powerful and, and still revered, not even just respected, revered political brand. Hillary resents the crap out of that whole thing. And if she can just get Bill to not stare at Ariana Grande's Grande, if you know what I mean. I mean, I don't know if you saw today, but Bill, Bill was at the funeral and sure enough, Ariana Grande was performing and there's a whole shot of Bill Clinton and he's, he's really enjoying listening and looking at Ms. Grande. Whew. Man, he is. He can look. He can't. He can't help himself, folks. He's got like a compulsion. But if she can keep Bill, if Hillary, hello, can keep Bill from being super creepy and being a political liability for her, I, I really think that there's a. I, I, I understand it's a long shot, folks. And you know, so don't don't play this interview back for me in a year when, sure enough, you know, you get Elizabeth Warren or somebody who's going to be running. Uh, I'm just saying if I could put, you know, you know, in, in, if you're going to place a bet, if I could bet on the horse right now that has 20 to one odds that I think actually would be worth it. I think Hillary, I think Hillary's better than a 20 to one shot. I think Hillary's more like a one in five that she runs, which when you think about what's going on in American politics, you think about how she's run twice, hasn't won. And all the baggage that she brings along, it just goes to tell you, though, that's how entrenched the establishment is. That's how much the deep state of even the the elected Democrats and the all the different people that they bring along with them. You know, that's how immovable they are. I know. I know. John, do you think this is a crazy idea? I may maybe I'm a little crazy. I could see I could see this happening, though. You know, they, how, how, let me see how, how old is Hillary? Hillary, I think she's 70, Clinton age. She, yeah, she's 70. She could, so in 2020, she would be, gosh, math on the fly here, 72. 
They say, yeah, she's like Reagan age, basically. She's 72 to 76. I'm sure we're talking. Look at what they say about folks. Look at Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Democrats have convinced themselves that Ruth Bader Ginsburg is like some kind of Olympic, you know, triathlete or something. You know, they, they take photos. They fawn over photos of her doing planks. I'm worried she's going to pass out. They're, they're, they, they've created this whole, I mean, how, how old is Ginsburg? Let me just check this. Ginsburg age, she is 85, folks. Ginsburg is 85 years old. Hillary Clinton's only 70. And they're hoping that Ginsburg is going to make it at least another three uh, years before, or something like that, at least another three years before she would retire, let's say. They want Ginsburg to stay as a Supreme Court justice until she's basically 90. You don't think that they would hope that Hillary will extend the clock so that she, I, I don't know, I, I'm just really, I really think this is going to happen. And it would, I mean, could you imagine a replay, a rematch of Trump-Hillary in 2020? It's, it's a crazy idea, and I know people will make fun of me for this in the future, but right now, I don't know, it, it, somehow it kind of makes sense to me. Somehow it all, it all sticks together. Um, I'm, I'm, get, I'm just getting a weird feeling about it. There's just nobody else in the Democrat field right now. I mean, I, you know, they're saying Elizabeth Warren. Biden? I mean, how old is, how old is Joe Biden? He's got to be, he's got to be up there too. 75! People are talking about Biden running again. He's 75. Hillary's only 70. How can, explain this to me. Riddle me this. How is it that Joe Biden is being talked about as the kind of default Democrat candidate going into 2020 right now for the president? Bernie Sanders, 76. They're talking about him running for president. And people are going to tell me that Hillary's what? Hillary's too old? Elizabeth Warren's the same age. She's 69. Donald Trump is 72. So, you know, I, I just, I I think it's going to be Hillary again. For, just give me this, folks. If I'm right, this will be one of the greatest predictions you've ever heard on, on talk radio. If I end up being right. So just, just mark this day down and then put it away for posterity because we're all going to forget about this. If sure enough, Kamala Harris or some other, you know, kind of mainstream Democrat ends up winning the nomination but i'm telling you right now if i had if i had to put a bet down i would bet hillary 2020 with kamala harris below her on the ticket that is what the democrats run he's holding the line for america buck sexton is back Oh, by the way, if they write tomorrow, the enthusiasm in the room was wanting. You know, they're like, wanting. See, you have to understand, I have a better education than they do from a much better school. But the elite, they're the elite. They're the elite. I went to better schools. I went to better everything. And by the way, by the way, you ready for this? And... I'm president, and they're not. The most remarkable thing about the modern Democrat Party is how truly undemocratic they really have become, right? The so-called resistance is mad because their ideas have been rejected by the American people. 
And we're really rejecting. We're getting rid of those bad ideas one by one so fast. And it is driving them crazy. They're the old and corrupt globalist ruling class that squandered trillions of dollars on foreign adventures. The whole world is watching and the whole world gets it. And the whole world understands exactly what's going on. That's right, folks. Trump last night in Indiana, he was he was in in Trump form, baby. He was doing his thing. And, you know, people people love it. They love to hear when he just he tears into this notion of the elites. By the way, he's the re, one of the reasons journalists hate him so much. There's a lot. But because overwhelmingly journalists are people who think of themselves as at the the very upper echelon of society. They're they're constructing a narrative of of our lives and with our every move and every day. And, and then what we also find is that a lot of journalists tend to go to I mean, not, not that I'm I don't think that school snobbery is is founded. I don't think it's true. I don't think it's important. But a lot of journalists, they think it's really important. You know, they'll tell you very quickly. They went to Columbia Journalism School, which who who even cares? No one. No one should ever go to journalism school. It's a giant waste of time. Uh, but the Columbia Journalism School, uh, an Ivy League university. But generally speaking, and this is Trump. He knows where to how to push their buttons. You know, journalists are people that they don't they don't make as much money as the people they cover, but they want to have as much power as the people they cover and influence. And they generally went to second or third tier schools and have a chip on their shoulder about it. It's true. It's true. Look, I know a lot of journalists. So when Trump pokes them on this one. Man, it just gets them so angry. Uh, and that, you know, that, that uh, globalism is being rejected by people and the old and corrupt globalist ruling class, he says, is being rejected. That's another part of this that really upsets journalists because you know who they all work for, folks? They all work for the American equivalent of oligarchs or in some cases foreign oligarchs who just happen to own like Carlos Slim, Mexican oligarch who owns a big piece of the New York Times. But domestically, even like Jeff Bezos with the Washington Post and you go down the line and you look at at who controls what in the media. And these guys, all the the, the elites in the media, the mainstream media, all work for what you could basically say is our equivalent of an oligarch. And Trump didn't stop there. Like I said, he was he was doing he was just talking about some great stuff last night. Uh, He spoke specifically about. And I love when he does the, the sarcasm thing. He spoke about uh, what he's done for women. Because we keep hearing it. And I know the polls show Trump's numbers with women. Not fantastic. Uh, but I think it's going to get better. But here's what he said about it. Play two. All right, women. This is not good. So African-American, historic. Asian-American, Hispanic, all historic, right? Sorry, women. I let you down again. Women's unemployment rate recently reached only the lowest rate in 65 years. I let you down. I'm sorry. 65 years, folks. Feels feels like that would be a pretty important data point. I feel like if that had been the case in the Obama administration, you would have heard it a lot. But then again, comparisons to anything... uh, related to Obama that are unfavorable when it comes to Trump and Obama being compared. Uh, that's something that really upsets the, the upsets the media. And 
the elimination, because remember, the, a lot of the media, a lot of the journos had a big investment in Obama's legacy because they constructed it. They created that whole narrative of Obama, right? I mean, he, yes, he gave them the, the two, the two autobiographies, mind you. The guy wasn't even 50 years old. He'd written two autobiographies. Wow, he has a very high opinion of himself. Uh, but they took it and ran with it. And, can, and remember, it, Axelrod is a journalist. I mean, he, the whole o- Obama as a political figure was, was a construct, but Trump is erasing Obamaism when it comes to policy and the, and the Obama legacies within the government, and perhaps more clearly on the environment than anywhere else, as he said, as Trump said last night, play three. We are canceling President Obama's illegal anti-coal, so-called clean power plan. You know, there's an example. It's such a beautiful name, clean power, clean power, right? They want to have windmills all over the place, right? When the wind doesn't blow, what do we do? Uh, We got problems. The environmentalists, we like Windmills. Oh, really? What about the thousands of birds they're killing? Try going to the bottom of a windmill someday. It's not a pretty picture. Your house is staring at a windmill. Not good. When you hear that noise going round and round and round and you're living with it and then you go crazy after a couple of years. Not good. And the environmentalists say, oh, isn't it wonderful? Again, take a reasonable, rational person approach to these things and it all starts to make sense, doesn't it? And that's all that Trump is doing. I mean, this notion that we're going to have all these windmills, windmills, windmills stink. I don't mean they actually smell, but uh, windmills are, are, generally speaking, an eyesore. They are Cuisinarts for migratory fowl. That's right. They buzz them up. Uh, you, you get the picture. And Trump pointed that out. And if Obama's ideas in the environment were so good, he should have managed to get legislation through to pass it. If Obama really had a compelling argument about how we need to change the way that we uh, the way that we use energy in our economy, he should have just made the case. He shouldn't have decided to use executive orders and then have the media cover for him on those orders. You know, that, that that's not what should have happened. But it is. You know what that means, though, folks? It means that Trump can get rid of it. It means that Trump is getting rid of it. And they hate it and they can't stop it right now. You know, the, the House of Representatives is in the balance this fall. I know that. But no matter what, they got to deal with Trump on the executive side. He is just putting tons of great constitutionalist judges in the on the federal bench. Kavanaugh, baby. Kavanaugh's going to get through. Uh, so there's a lot to look forward to in this whole process. Now, let's talk more about the uh, Mueller probe in just a moment. All I can say this. Our Justice Department and our FBI at the top of each, because inside they have incredible people. But our Justice Department and our FBI have to start doing their job and doing it right and doing it now. Because people are angry. People are angry. What's happening is a disgrace. And at some point, I wanted to stay out, but at some point, if it doesn't straighten out properly, I want them to do their job. I will get involved, and I'll get in there if I have to. That's right, baby. The commander-in-chief may step in, the chief executive of the United States government. He may say, you know what, enough's enough. We're going to have to actually clean house here. 
I think it's long. It's long past time for it at the Department of Justice. Uh, I, I like this this thing that I'm hearing that um, Rudy Giuliani, who is out there and and is a uh, a staunch defender of the president on, on all these issues, they're putting together a quote counter report according to the Daily Beast here. That's going to just go to the very legitimacy of Mueller's investigation. Folks, it's important. This is a political fight. Let's not fool ourselves for one second. This is all about politics. It has been from the start. This is a, the the, the whole rationale behind this investigation is not about, does anyone even care about the Russian interference anymore? No. What are we doing about it? Nothing. It was a joke. Russian interference was a drop in not just the bucket, a drop in the ocean. It didn't change the election, didn't change anything. That was just a pretext to get this whole thing going. And here's what we know is going to happen. Mueller is going to release this whole big report. And no matter what it says at this point, just because they've prosecuted a bunch of uh, different administration-tied officials or formerly tied to the administration, uh, they're going to say that there's so much corruption around Trump this is going to be the uh, the the way the Democrats position this. They're going to say there's so much Trump corruption that even if they don't find anything, they will um, they will say it needs to be there needs to be impeachment. So even if nothing really new or nothing additional comes out of this, they're going to say, oh, well, th- there's there's enough already. I mean, they're going for impeachment no matter what. That's really the bottom line. They're going for impeachment no matter what the uh, end result of the Mueller probe is. So why not get ahead of this and make the case uh, that this whole thing is a joke? Because it is. You know, Trump should be on offense. His people should be on offense with this one. And they are on offense. All right. This is a political hack move. uh, And that's what it's been from the very beginning. You know, they've got this uh, Manafort associate, Sam Patton, that they charged today. He has pleaded guilty in a case that is referred by Mueller. And, uh, you know, federal prosecutors uh, nailed this guy. All right. So he, what did they get him on, by the way? Failure to register as a foreign agent, folks. Or I'm sorry, acting as an agent of a foreign principal. Um, he pleaded guilty to acting as an agent of a foreign principal. So yeah, and yeah, no, it's, I'm sorry. It is failure to register. This is a fair violation. He faces up to five years in prison for this one. Five years in prison, a fine of up to $250,000 because he bought, because he does work in Ukraine with, you know, he was tied to Manafort. He bought uh, four tickets to the inauguration, paid $50,000 for four tickets to the inauguration uh, for a, Ukrainian oligarch. So, and he, and he hid that. He did it through a straw purchase or something. So it wasn't reported properly. Who the heck cares? I mean, okay, this is technically illegal, but a lot of things are technically illegal, folks, like storing classified information on your homebrew server in your basement when you're Secretary of State. That's illegal, too. A lot of things are illegal. You know, the, the prosecutor's office always has to take into account the ultimate aim of justice. It's not just about, oh, well, we can find a way to make this or to talk about this in such a way that it's that it's illegal. Uh, to construe this as illegal. Well, with Trump, anything they can do, anyone they can flip, anybody they can bring in to 
the the fold here as part of the uh, anti-Trump resistance, and that's why they've gone after this guy on Farah. They're gonna have this is another name, another guy, another nobody who is gonna have has has his life upended and ruined because sure enough they want to get at Trump. I also thought this was interesting that you had a, according to CNN here, you had two prosecutors leave uh, Special Counsel Mueller's office. They're relatively junior, um, but they had been with Mueller for a while. I wonder if some of them realize early on here that, or not early on, but in advance, that this is not going to end up, this is not going to end well for the Mueller probe, actually. I think people are going to look back on the entire Mueller fiasco. People are honest about it, right? I mean, they're the anti-Trump partisans. They like it. There are people, I want to be very clear, there are people right now in this country, lots of them, and they a lot of them work at CNN. There are people in the media and the Democratic Party who, if there was unconscionable bias that was exposed from Mueller, even beyond what we already know, but I mean, if they had Mueller on tape saying, you know, we we're, we got to get Trump no matter what we have to do, if if we have to fabricate evidence, we'll stop him, to borrow from Peter Strzok. And if that audio, that you know, hypothetical audio was made public, they would still be very thankful and happy to Mueller because of all the damage he's done uh, to Trump's presidency already. It's not about justice. It's not about the truth. It is about destroying this administration. That's the primary motivation here. That's what has been pushing them all along. And so I I like that they're being proactive. I like that Giuliani's out there making the case and and that Trump is saying, all right, DOJ, And, and by the way, he's putting them on notice too. Trump's let them know just because the Mueller probe, you know, the Mueller probe ends. There's still people who are out there working at the DOJ uh, and and then it's going to be time to dig into it. There are people remember that as part of this as well. There are people who they may find themselves being investigated when they no longer have the shield of the ongoing Mueller probe. You got to remember right now, anything Trump does that can be construed as in any way affecting the Mueller probe, interfering with the Mueller probe is politically toxic. So that creates some degree of invulnerability, at least temporary invulnerability, for the folks at DOJ and FBI who may have been playing dirty here all along. Once the Mueller probe ends, and if Republicans manage to hold the House, that's another big part of this, but once the Mueller probe ends, that stops. Then we can start to really have the uh, the GOP dig into just what exactly happened here. Why is Bruce Orr only testifying behind closed doors, for example? What's that all about? I want to know what Bruce Orr was doing. Well, the American people have a right to know. There is a presidency at stake. It's no longer acceptable to say, oh, well, you know, we need to, we need to respect uh, the, the institutional, you know, institutional prerogatives that are at stake here. No, no, no. The presidency is at stake. I think that this means, you know, talking about the president as being norm busting, he needs to bust some norms on this thing. So uh, I like that. By the way, Roger Stone has also said that he expects Mueller to charge him. I think that's just Stone, another guy that I've interviewed this summer. I think that's just Stone, honestly, trying to get attention. I, I don't think he really believes that Mueller is going to charge him. I think that Stone realizes he wants to be in the center of the story. He wants people to be taking photos of him in his uh, very, let's say, uh, idiosyncratically tailored suits. Uh, I think that's his plan. Um, apparently, Stone is quite the snappy dresser. Uh, I don't think that he's actually going to get charged, but we'll see. 
And I don't think it's going to be a Mueller bombshell today, but hopefully while I'm on air here, the bombshell doesn't drop because then I'll look like I was wrong, which I don't like. We've got much more coming up. Team, stay with me. The FBI calls home title theft one of the fastest growing crimes. Brace yourselves, folks. Having your credit card stolen is nothing compared to the hell you're in for once an identity thief takes control of your home's title. I can't stress it enough. It's so easy for the bad guys to do this. And I know that we all have this sense of everybody around us. There's so many people. This isn't going to happen to me. It does happen to people all the time. And if it happens to you, by the time you figure it out, it's too late. All the bad guys have to do is take you off your home's title, replace it with an alias, and then borrow every penny they can against your home's equity. You only find out when the banks start saying, hey, where are those payments you owe us? Okay, for just pennies a day, Home Title Lock protects my most valuable asset, my family's home. Register now for a free analysis. Discover if your home's title has been compromised. That's a $60 value for free. Visit HomeTitleLock.com. Again, that's HomeTitleLock.com. This includes a commitment to universal health care. Universal health care? The promise of universal health care. Healthcare is a human right and not a privilege. A healthcare human is right. a human right. We can ensure all of our people. Healthcare ought to be treated like a right and not a privilege. Yeah. Medicare for all is actually much more, is, is actually much cheaper than the current system that we pay right now. Universal right, folks. Universal healthcare is a, is a universal right. I mean, th- this is a... This isn't a window into the, the soul of the Democratic Party right now. Um, but keep in mind that health care is the number one issue for voters, according to a, a number of polls that I've seen in the last month. So health care really matters. And this is where I think that I'll be honest with you, I, I think that Trump is not making enough of a, of a case on this one. Yes, Obamacare stinks, but we haven't really fully replaced Obamacare. I'm not going to say anything about a certain senator right now and how he voted on that whole issue, but... You know, there were some people that decided they weren't going to play ball with the rest of of Team GOP on that. Uh, But we haven't gotten the full repeal in replace. And we know that people are really concerned about health care. In fact, here, according to Forbes, because I I talk about this with with some frequency, when people say that they're really concerned about health care, the number one problem they have is prescription prices. And then the number two concern is single payer coverage. So that is... And then we got Medicare funding, Medicaid funding. And when you look at this, what you see, folks, is that people are worried about their prescription drugs. They have been convinced that single payer is a good thing. And they want the government to be paying for their health care. This is troubling. This, if there's one thing I can point to that makes me worried for the midterms, it's that the Republican messaging on health care right now is almost non-existent. Yes, the economy is really good, but healthcare is something that has a a real uh, impact in the way voters think about which party is addressing their needs. Uh, it goes it goes to people's real concerns, right? It's to say your your stock portfolio or or your your wages or whatever is up ten or fifteen percent. That's great, but in your back of your mind, if you think I can't afford healthcare and if I get sick, I'm going to go bankrupt, that affects you a lot more. That's going to affect the way you vote a lot more. Uh, but I am concerned, you know, Bernie Sanders, the health care is a universal right. Um, I think that almost sounded like Cuomo, but it's Bernie. We're not doing a good enough job on this one. We, we the, the GOP needs to flood the airwaves 
with why single payer is going to be a disaster, why single payer is destined to be an economic catastrophe and also won't be good care. You know, I've run this experiment in my own life. I've been to a doctor's office when I had crappy health care, a specialist, and it was hard to get an appointment. I had to wait forever. And I had uh, a doctor that I didn't like and that I didn't think was doing a very good job. They rushed me in and out. And that that was my health care. I've also been to a doctor where I said, I am writing a check. How much does this cost? And let me tell you something. That doctor saw me right on time, spent a lot of time with me. No BS, no fuss, no muss. Got exactly the care that I was promised. And it was delivered in a timely and efficient fashion. The market still matters. People need to be made aware of this. We, If we do not have the economic incentives for not just more efficient coverage, but more health care delivered to more people, uh, if we don't have greater delivery mechanisms for health care, if, if doctors feel like, you know what, it's not worth it anymore, we're going to have big problems here, folks. What we do have, though, on, on our side of the equation in this whole thing, because I, I am critical and I'm concerned as we're going into this holiday week, and I'm concerned about the messaging around healthcare, no question about it. And I, I sit here, I ask you, what do you, what is the GOP saying they're going to accomplish on healthcare? What are they promising to get done on healthcare? I, I don't even know. You tell me uh, how they're approaching this issue. You know, you you tell me what they think the message. Is. Yeah, Obamacare stinks, but guess what? They're not they're not pushing for Obamacare anymore, anymore folks. The Democrats are saying they want single payer. Forget Obamacare. They just want the government to start writing checks for everybody's health care. And you got states now that are saying they want to do it too. I hope the states do it first so that we'll see how disastrous it is and maybe that will warn us off from. But as I said to you, Democrats always have a way of saying that the experiment that they that has been run, you can't draw any conclusions from it because it didn't give the result they wanted. Um but on our side of, of the of the fence, or what we've got going for us in this whole situation, is that uh, the Democrats, all they have to do is not be crazy, and they can't do it. They can't do it. Uh, Democrats are running around saying all sorts of just nonsensical, insane things. Here is, for example, Sean Caston of Chicago's 6th uh, District. He's a Democrat. Here's a little little comparison he threw out there. Play nine. In many ways, and this is, I don't mean to sound overly, uh, I don't know, hyperbolic on this, Trump and, and Osama bin Laden have a tremendous amount in common because they have both figured out how to use the holy pulpit to, to you know, activate marginalized young men. Right? Um, it's the same tool. Trump and bin Laden have a lot in common? This This would be like saying... Mother Teresa and Hitler have a lot in common. They're both really charismatic and inspired, devoted followings. I mean, that's a true statement, but it's a moronic statement. It's an idiotic thing to say. Trump and bin Laden have a lot. I mean, first, the the Democrats are the ones who are always, you know, soft-pedaling Islamic terrorism. By the way, you see that they released a number of these people tied to this facility in uh, you know, that were that were tied to this facility out in uh, what was it, New Mexico? They released them without uh, without charge. I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, anyway, um, but but here you got a guy who's going to compare Trump and Bin Laden, and clearly he thinks that 
just by taking such a reckless and stupid cheap shot at the president, he's helping himself. This is what I mean. Democrats, all they have to do is not be crazy. They can't do it. They can't do it. They got Bernie Sanders running a little, little. We're just going to pay for this. I'm going to pay for that. And, uh, you know, the government's going to fund all of your health care because it's a universal right to have your health care funded, to have your college paid for. Well, no, it's really not. It's really not. Emergency care, life-saving care, yeah. You know, we're, we're a wealthy enough society that we've got to make sure that we're, we're saving lives. But, you know, health care covers a huge range of issues. You know, can I get the government to pay for, like, a massage for me twice a week? It's great for my blood pressure. You know, it really helps things out. Universal health care, where does that stop and start? Of course, you're going to have government bureaucrats that are in charge of this stuff, and they're going to make all these decisions. Oh, but but in terms of Democrats that don't seem to uh, be staying within the bounds of, of normalcy, here is Minnesota House candidate Kyle Green. Play clip six, please. Hi, I'm your neighbor Kyle Green. I'm running for District 18A State Representative. I'm not asking for you to vote for me as your leader. I'm asking for you to vote for me as your public servant. The primary duty of a state representative is to protect all the rights of his constituents. I want to be your state representative. I want to be your public servant. And I want to be your neighbor. Uh, he said the N-word at the end of that, folks. Um, so this guy thinks that the way to push his campaign to the public and put you know and, and reach the next level is to throw a racial slur into his political ad. Oh, he's a Democrat. We know that. He's a Democrat. Whew. Wow. This is why, even though I think our healthcare messaging on the GOP sucks right now, we might still be able to hold the house. Because the left is a bunch of loonies. So we got that going for us, which is nice. But uh I want to tell you, we got we got Sean Spicer joining us here in just a little bit. Spicy! That's right, Sean Spicer. He's got a book out now. He was White House press secretary. I got a chance to meet him. He actually uh, came and hung out with me today on Rising as well. So we got to chat for for quite a while. And, you know, he's a very nice guy, I got to say. You know, he's, he's, a, he's a jovial fellow. He's a little more diminutive than you might guess. Kind of a little bit on the petite side. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Uh, but, you know, he's... I could tell that, uh, you know, he's written this book and he was uh, in the RNC for seven or eight years. He's been around the game for quite a long time. He's a little, uh, a little politically shell-shocked after what he went through. So we're, I'm going to really put him through his paces, ask him a lot of questions about what, what's re- what was really going on in this White House. Is it dysfunctional? What was it like for SNL to make fun of you, really? Do you like the nickname Spicy? You know, we're going to get into all that stuff. That's coming up this hour, folks. So we're going to have Sean Spicer here in the Freedom Hut. Uh, Stay with me for that and much more. Folks, our nation's capital has its charms, but it also is a place where there's plenty of uh, break-ins and and plenty of petty crimes to worry about. That's why I have a Simply Safe home security system at my place. Simply Safe is all about the details. So whenever I'm out and about in this city, I know that I can check in on my place via the app that Simply Safe has set up for me, and I can make sure that I am protected against intruders, fires, leaks, and burst pipes. Makes me feel like I've got somebody watching my six all the time. Simply Safe is there for you. 24-7 monitoring is only $14.99 a month, okay? Check it out for yourself. There's a reason Simply Safe protects over 2 million people, and as a company, is worth over a billion dollars. 
Order your Simply Safe system now. My listeners get free shipping and returns. Go to simplysafe.com/buck. That's simplysafe.com/buck. Again, simplysafe.com/buck. Well, I just think the uh, the volume and the uh, to me uh, irrationality of some of the things he's saying in his tweets. Uh, at least tell me that, uh, you know, the, the walls are kind of uh, crashing in on him. I think what he's trying to do, to use a military expression, is prep the battlefield for uh, taking uh, some action later and, in the meantime, maximum extent that he can, undermining uh, the credibility of the investigations. Yeah, that's the former director of national intelligence. I, I've spoken to him about this whole issue of the Russia collusion investigation and you know, it's so interesting. That was, in my in my opinion, a classic case that that just soundbite we played for you of what psychologists call projection, because the, what what he accused the president of doing, which is preparing the the battlefield of you know the of public opinion, essentially preparing the battlefield for what's going to come. I believe that has been a primary motivation for Brennan and Clapper and Hayden. All along. Now, look, Hayden's in a a slightly different category because he wasn't in office. And this is an important distinction. He was not serving in the intelligence community during the Russia collusion situation, right? During during that whole narrative, that whole fairy tale. But Clapper and Brennan were. Comey was. These are people who have fingerprints all over this thing. And I believe that one of the reasons they've decided to just drop the mask and run out there and show themselves to be so rabidly partisan is that one they want to try and shift the overton window of discussion around trump and russia collusion in a way that will be more favorable to them when the truth comes out and two they want to make sure they have established because they know how powerful it is to have the uh, left wing of america come to your defense to have the media start writing all these profiles. I mean, that puff piece they wrote about Bruce Orr, they made it sound like Bruce Orr was single-handedly taking on the Russian mafia. You know, it's just like running around like a one-man army. Like like Bruce Orr was basically a Dolph Lundgren movie in the late 80s. You know, he takes on the Russian mob, one Ruski at a time. I mean, it was, Bruce Orr is a desk jockey. I mean, just like me back in the old CIA days, right? Actually, I... Saw some more zones, but that's a different thing. I mean, still doing it, still doing analytic work. Uh, but Bruce, I don't know if he's ever been in, in in any of the active combat zones. All I know is that the guy is not exactly an imposing figure, and he's also not the hero that the New York Times is making him sound like. He's an ideological zealot. But they want to make sure that when push comes to shove, they will have the left wing of the Democratic Party, and really the Democratic Party overall, because the left wing controls the Democratic Party. I mean, the the psychological center of the Democratic Party is far left. And they're hoping that by establishing their anti-Trump bona fides, uh, they will have assistance when we finally get to all the truth. And that's why, you know, this this Victor Davis Hanson piece that's been making the rounds, I've been giving VDH a lot of love this week. I, I'm a, I think he's great. I think he's a fantastic writer and a very, just a very clear-minded thinker. And I remember I, I met him out at, I met him out at the, uh, the Hoover Institute when I was out there as a visiting fellow, um, what, about a year ago. And I sort of said, you know, oh, I, I read your book, A War Like No Other. And, you know, Victor, it was, just, it was so good. And I just really appreciate all your work and think you do such a good job. 
<laughs> he was kind of like, okay, thank you. <laughs> he was really not, he's a really low key, he's a really low key guy. I can say that for sure. He's a low key guy. I was like, oh, I was like, I think you're one of the finest editorial writers of our, of, you know, of, of my gen or not of my generation, but, you know, around the scene today. That's very nice of you. You know, he's not, uh, he's not effusive. He's not exactly going to give you a high five and a hug if you see him, but he's a great writer. He's a good dude. And he's just saying that Trump needs to declassify, as I've been saying for not just weeks, but months now. I want Trump to declassify. Had enough. Yeah, I've had enough of all of this. And uh, that's that's what needs to happen here. We, we need a shock therapy of truth around this whole Russia collusion thing. We already know what's coming, folks. That's why Clapper's saying the walls are closing in on Trump. What do you mean? The Mueller probe is run. Everyone's losing patience with the Mueller probe. It's running out of steam. The walls are closing in on Trump. How? They they had 30 hours with McGahn, the White House counsel, and they still have no evidence of collusion. No intelligent person could look me in the eye and and say to me that if they had real evidence of collusion, we would not have heard of it by now. It's just not possible. It would have leaked. It would have leaked. So that's why they're doing all this other stuff. You know, Mueller is, is kicking, kicking all the tires, turning over all the stones. Uh, you know, mix your metaphors. You get what I'm saying. That's what's going on here. So you can believe me or you can believe you can believe uh, Al Gore, who had this to say about Trump. Play 12. So if he's watching this, what's your message to President Trump when it comes to climate? Oh, my only message would be resign. I mean, I don't mean to be flipping about it. I don't think he is prepared to listen to advice uh, about the importance of clean air and clean water. I don't think he is prepared to listen to advice on clean air and clean water. <laughs> so he's not telling him to resign over the Mueller probe even. He should resign over his environmental policies, according to Al Gore. Uh, guys, you know, it, it's just a reminder. We're always told that Trump is, is so norm-busting and it's so crazy, he's president. Al Gore won the popular vote in 2000. Hillary Clinton won the popular vote in 2016. I mean, these are not just unimpressive people. They're clowns. They are clownishly unimpressive. There's nothing to recommend them. Al Gore is a fraud. Hillary Clinton is a crook and a thief. And that's what the Democrats offer up to us instead. Oh, we're, we're so foolish because we wanted to give Trump a shot. Not because I think, I don't think Trump's some kind of messiah. I just think he's going to do a good job. Can I just, can I have somebody in office who's doing a good job instead of somebody who's, you know, transforming the thoughts of the American literati about the future of this country and grappling with its historical excesses or whatever. I just want somebody who's like, yeah, let's make things work here. Let's do a good job. I don't want a politician that we have to think about. In fact, I, I would prefer in a, as Trump's success goes on and, and further and further, other than his battles with the media, which are amazing, I just want to be able to, to ignore much of the, the political squabble and focus on other problems. And I, I want to sit here and talk about how do we, you know, how do we as a country come together to, to deal with the opioid epidemic? I mean, how do we um, deal with the problem of mass structural unemployment that may come from artificial intelligence and, and computer learning and how that will affect uh, the workplace and essentially eliminating a lot, a lot of jobs, right? I mean, those are real, those are things we should all be thinking about. That, that requires... Uh, research and analysis and and time and 
depth of conversation. Instead, it's all, oh my gosh, Trump's a racist. He's a racist. Trump is not a racist. They can keep saying it, but they keep saying it because they can't actually come up with a real repudiation of his policies because it's hard to convince people that success is bad. All right, everybody, I got a special treat for you before you head off for your uh, Labor Day weekend festivities. Forget about the fact that it is a kind of Marxist left-wing holiday. It's fun. You get a day off, so let's get excited about that. I have uh, Sean Spicer here with me in studio in the Freedom Hut. Sean Spicer, as you all know, was the White House press secretary. He has a new book out, The Briefing. Mr. Spicer, great to have you here. Thanks for having me. All right, so the book, tell me a bit about it. Uh, so there's, there's two people ask me all the time, why did I write a book? I left the white house and my plan wasn't to do it, but two things kind of came to light after I left. I was doing a lot of speaking going around the country. One is sort of the perception and source of information that people had about me where they'd say, I read in the New York times, I read in Politico that you felt you thought. And I finally realized when it comes to me, uh, if I want to get my story straight, instead of relying on a bunch of mainstream media folks, I might as well tell my own story as to how I got where I got, what was going on at key moments in time. And the second important thing, um, and you and I were talking about this coming in, is that there was a lot of things going on during the campaign in terms of what we were doing it, why we were doing it, the use of data, our ground game, things that no one was reporting on at the time. And I thought, if I don't put this down on paper and talk about what was going on behind the scenes, it's going to get lost to history. Yeah, I mean, the mainstream narrative on this stuff is that Trump won because Trump, and his Twitter account. Basically. Exactly. Yeah. And then and and since then, it's because we colluded with some Russians. Right? <laughs> right. So, yeah, we can get so, to that, too. Right. But but I mean, the idea is that there was a real sophisticated use of data. We had ground folks, uh, grand, you know, troops around the country in key battleground states. We were matching the data with the people. We knew where to go, what to what ads to run. I mean, there was a level of sophistication that no one wanted to take the time to look at. Because they thought, well, Hillary's got a thousand people in Brooklyn. You guys have a hundred. She must be doing it better. Uh, and sitting back and showing people, walking people through the campaign, what we were seeing, it, how many votes we needed, where we thought we could pick them up, blah, 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 was to me crucial for people who look back on this campaign and really want to understand why Trump won. Now, there are some questions I got to ask you, right? There's some that if I sat here and didn't ask you, I am right handed. I'm right handed. Right. People would say, uh, how could you not, not, not get an answer on this one? For example, uh, why so many departures from this White House so early on? Um, that's a good question, because I think there's probably three main reasons. Um, number one, uh, Trump did not come into this office having been a pol- politician. So he, wa- if you think about Obama, Bush, Clinton, whatever, they had been in politics. They had a cadre of people and supporters that they had worked with for years. So you had people to call upon to fill key roles that you had worked with or worked around. Um, he didn't have that. So he has this disparate group of folks. We didn't have a robust campaign to pull from either. So you're pulling people that, you know, are from business that are recommended to you. And some of them just are not good fits. Some of them aren't qualified. And then lastly, I think there's a high burnout rate. And, and that's another part of it. Yeah. Why is, why is McGann leaving in your estimation? I know you've been out for a while. I mean, look, I I think that the, 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 if, if we turn the corner at year two, there are a lot of senior folks that I would be surprised if they don't leave. I mean, the level of intensity that's there never, you know, just of any White House is crazy. 
Never mind this White House, which is running on an exponential factor of that. Never mind the fact that someone like McGahn or others have been there through the campaign. So if you think about it, it's not just your time in the White House. I spent six years at the RNC before seven months at the White House. I had spent seven, almost seven years just nonstop. And when you think about that in terms of, you know, there's very little downtime. There's very little weekends that you get off. And so it's not just that. And I mean, it gets ramped up in the White House to a, to a level that is even crazier than the fits uh, of the final weeks of the campaign on a constant basis. But I think someone like Don has come in and he's done his job and he's basically saying, okay, it's been two years plus the campaign. I need to spend some time with my family. Now, people, even even from, from my side of it, and, and I'm supportive of the president, I get to be open about this, which is nice. I'm like a lot of journalists who say they're just being neutral. Right. I support President Trump. I voted for President Trump. And I think on a policy level, He's done a great job his first now, what, 18 months or so in office, uh, and I'm very happy with all that. However, I do hear, and you have particular insight into this, that the, and, and when I say hear it, I, I read it, I see it. It's being talked about all the time, but this White House, from a bureaucratic and procedure standpoint, the actual White House is dysfunctional, that there are problems with the day-to-day. One, is that true? And if it's true, does it matter? The second part of your question is the key part, because at the end of the day, are you looking at style or substance? Are you looking at results or not? And I think that if I'm a if I'm a citizen and I go, is the economy better? Are more people working? Are my wages going up? Do you really care about the process that got you there? Conversely, if the process is running smoothly and yet things aren't going well, do you really care how well something's being run? Um, I would argue that it's disruptive. The president didn't come in, and this dovetails what you asked the first question you asked. I don't think you're looking at somebody who's looking at norms and traditions and procedures and saying we've got to follow all these. He's looking at getting things done, bringing in people that he thinks have unique experiences and abilities to get things done. And he's not looking to hew to, to how things have been done since you know Dwight Eisenhower. It's I'm going to get it done no matter what. And part of I, I talk about this in the book. One of the things that was fascinating to me right off the bat and if anyone's been involved in a campaign, they, they'll get this. On election night, we're down on the fifth floor of Trump Tower in a small room gathered with the key senior staff, the vice president uh, now, the then Governor Pence, and we're all looking at results. And the president calls down to Ivanka and says, where are you? And she says, we're down in this little room, kind of the senior team kind of pouring through results, doing a little analysis, and, and uh, why don't you come down? And Trump says, no, come up to 12, where everybody was gathered in the middle of the war room. And it was interesting to me as someone who's been around politics a long time. Normally, they want the, the principal, the candidate, the member wants to be kind of among a small team so that they can have frank and you know, discussions as results come in. Trump wanted to be among the people. That was the first real sign to me that this was not a guy who was looking to run and act like everyone else uh, does in politics. And it, he's broken the mold. Now, I'm sure and we're speaking to Sean Spicer, by the way. He's got a new book out, The Briefing. Uh, mostly, I think, fair to say, right, about your time as White House press secretary. Uh, I think we can all assume that when I ask the question, another that must ask, right, what was it like to be the press secretary? You say, oh, it was great to serve my country and this administration, and we can assume all that, right? You work for Donald Trump. It's a great honor. You were the White House press secretary. What surprised you about being the White House press secretary? I think what surprised me the most is how little we, we and I prepared for the non-traditional aspect to this. I looked at the role going in. I talked to so many of my predecessors on both sides of the aisle. I prepared like a normal press secretary. 
And I don't think that we, knowing what we did, and it was staring us in the face, we should have said this is not going to be like everyone else's White House. This is going to be uniquely different and disruptive. And yet I prepared for it like I would have prepared for it had it, you know, had it been in the tradition of every other guy that came for me. And I think that's where I sort of reflect on this in the book, that I looked at it traditionally as opposed to disruptively. How could you have been a disruptive White House press secretary? I mean, I feel like some people well, would I think, think that you, that's, you, you know, you're supposed to be, uh, because you're interacting with the media machine, right. for you to not be fitting into that mold would automatically... And I think we tried to do that. I talk about this in the book, that we came in and the first thing that we did was shake up sort of who got called on and when they got called on. We didn't just focus on the mainstream media. We looked at bringing in and incorporating a lot of other voices, conservative media, uh, folks in the, quote, back of the room instead of just the, the, the mainstream media. Uh, and really get some outside perspectives, and we brought Skype in. But I, I think that part of it was just to understand that the relationship was going to change. It wasn't going to be that same relationship with the media that everyone else has had did, because Trump did, doesn't need them in the way that they do, and did, that's the that's the change in the dynamic. Did you feel like there was either a, a, a bizarre hostility toward you from the press corps specifically because of the Trump administration? Were, were you prepared for that aspect no, of it? No, no. I don't I've been doing this 25 years. I know that there's a bias. I think we all know. And it's not it's been proven by every, you know, tons of studies. So it's not. But I've always seen the press hide it. This time it was out on full display. They've lost all sense of objectivity and they don't care about it. I mean, it's fascinating to me to see the openness by which many of these people are very clear about their their um, animosity, their uh dislike of this president right. they, they've not they're not even just partisan in my estimation what i see is is activism sometimes right no no not sometimes many times i mean you're right that there is the sense of objectivity is gone yeah and that that's definitely different and it's one thing that i, I actually like that about the administration because i think that now it's harder than ever before for people to keep up this pretense uh that's so right. I, I so I, and I, I know people ask me about this all the time i'm curious uh and you know, I have a feeling I know where you might go with this, but I'll just put it out there. Do you embrace the nickname Spicy, and how did you feel about the whole SNL send-up of you with Melissa McCarthy and all this stuff? I've been called so many things that if that's what you call me, <laughs> I'm pretty good with it. Uh, I um, that Spicy's not bad. I mean, no, as nicknames go, I mean, sure, Spicy's I'll actually, take that. Yeah. Right, that's what I'm saying. I've, I've been called a lot of nasty things, so uh, I'll, I'll take that. I think... Um, I don't think by any means I was ever prepared for that. Uh, I mean, because it was fun. I actually rarely find what, I rarely find SNL sketches funny. Right. Occasionally I do, and one of the ones they did with you was actually funny. The, the first one was funny, and I agree with that. I kind of got a chuckle out of it. I laughed at it. The ones beyond that, it, it, it like our discussion with the press corps, that started to become personal and mean and vitriol as opposed to funny. And I was like, okay, I don't, I don't understand. I get what you're doing. But I don't think it's well, funny. Anymore. And, you know, I think that's a reflection also. I and mean, we saw this with Jimmy Fallon, right? He tussled. He tussled right. Trump's hair. And people who are just trying to be funny get anger well, thrown at them by the hashtag it, resistance. It, it was like a year later. And suddenly now he's apologizing for what? For being funny. The guy's a comic. He's late night. He is funny. And now suddenly he's having to apologize for being funny because he's not as you know, he's not considered uh, he hasn't attacked him as much as he's supposed to, according to the the left. The book is The Briefing. It's out now, available on Amazon, right? And wherever Barnes fine and books Noble, are sold. SeanSpicer.com. You can go wherever you want. SeanSpicer.com. Mr. Sean Spicer, great to actually meet you in person. Thanks Thank for coming you. to the hut. You bet. We gather here today to honor an American patriot. 
served a cause greater than himself. And we gather here remembering a man who knew how he wanted to be remembered. And so let me say to all those gathered and his beloved family, on behalf of a grateful nation, we will ever remember that John McCain served his country. And John McCain served his country honorably. May God bless the memory of John McCain. You know, we've got the way that the Republicans, like like Vice President Pence, talk about John McCain. And look, it is the man's funeral, okay? And he did serve his country honorably. I have a lot of political disagreements with him, but you know, I do. There, there is a, a need for decorum and, and respect here, and I've tried to show that in all of our discussions about the uh, recently departed senator. I mean, there is absolutely a need for that. And uh, then there's the way the Democrats do things. I have just thought it was so gross and so um, just so unbecoming to hear Democrats who will do this. They're playing the game. They're, they're so clear about it. Oh, isn't John McCain so great? Unlike that Trump guy. Oh, isn't John McCain so, you know, fantastic in how he served his country? Not like Trump, who was, a, you know, a chicken hawk or whatever it may be. It's very very frustrating and it's typical right we know that this is how the democrats play the game we know this is how they how they operate but um the, here here here's an here's an example of look biden had a lot of nice things to say about mccain but how about just make it about mccain and not have any implied political messages play seven it wasn't about politics with john he could disagree on substance but it was the underlying values that animated everything john did Everything he was could come to a different conclusion. But were he part company with you, if you lack the basic values of decency, respect, knowing that this project is bigger than yourself, the intolerance for the abuse of power. He could not stand the abuse of power wherever he saw it. Why does Joe Biden Give a speech like this whenever he wants to be taken seriously. I mean, well, Biden, his cadence is very forced and annoying. Uh, but I, I'm sorry. I know that maybe I'm reading a little too much between the lines here, but I see this as uh, this notion of the intolerance of the abuse of power. I mean, that's a pretty, I, I think that's a pretty clear swipe at, at Trump. I've never heard of John. When else in his life has John McCain made some big, in his political life, made some big uh, statement about intolerance for the abuse of power? No, I, I think that that's clearly Joe Biden trying to make this all about Trump. And they were doing it all week, folks. You know, whether it was uh, Jake Tapper over at CNN saying, you know, unlike, you know, he made the whole comparison. I forget exactly how he said it. He made the, uh, the comparison. And it's... Uh, you know, it's a very, it's a very annoying habit the Democrats are in to pretend that to pretend that they are just being patriotic and respectful when really they are trying to uh, use their use that as a political weapon. Uh, it's they're never able to put it aside. But this is what you should, I suspect, uh, expect even more of going forward now because they've politicized everything. Nothing can be apolitical. Uh, nothing is sacred or beyond the reach of leftist politics and, and including the way that many prominent Democrats are talking about 
what's going on at the you know what what the reality is here of, of the relationship between Trump and uh, the recently departed senator from Arizona. Uh, I, I don't know, guys. It, 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 you, you reach this point. Oh, we, there's another funeral that happened. Aretha Franklin's funeral, and and there's more politicization going on at this one. Play sixteen. You know, the other Sunday on my show, I misspelled respect. And a lot of y'all, a lot of y'all corrected me. Now I want y'all to help me correct President Trump to teach him what it means. A pretty good turn of uh, turn of phrase there, I guess, from Matt. Look, Al, Al Sharpton, don't don't mistake it. You know, don't get it twisted. He's got skills. Uh, he, we're, you know, he, he's a... He's a charlatan, but he's a ta- he's a talented charlatan. Uh, you know, R-E-S-P-I-C-T. I will uh, never forget that. Uh, but, you know, he, he's look at Aretha Franklin's funeral. He can say whatever he wants. And you know, that, that's that's all. But but I'm just saying that taking shots at Trump, even when you're at a funeral, is is pretty standard operating procedure now for Democrats. There's nothing. They'll do it in church. They'll do it at a funeral, you know. Uh, they'll they'll do it anywhere they can because they can never do it enough. That was one of things that came across when I was talking to Lisa Milano. I said, R- "Really, you're you think the media is not hostile enough to Trump? Like, are are you are you a lunatic?" Uh, and she said, "Yeah, the media is not hostile enough to Trump," which which was just remarkable, folks. It it is an utterly remarkable thing that she was saying. We got a big uh, hour three here coming up. Stay with me. Strikeforce Energy, veteran-owned, American-made, and one of the hottest energy products on the market. Strikeforce Energy was developed by veterans for one simple reason. The fight will always follow you, and it waits for no one. Buck Sexton here for Strikeforce. I invite you this summer to join us in giving back to America's troops. Over the last three years, Strikeforce Energy has shipped millions of packets to our troops both at home and abroad, and now we are bringing this battlefield-proven liquid directly to your door. Strikeforce Energy Liquid comes in four flavors, has zero sugar, zero calories, made with only the best ingredients, folks. For the fuel to power through your toughest fights, simply add Strikeforce to 16 to 20 ounces of water, tea, lemonade, even a nice cold beer. Go to StrikeforceEnergy.com and receive 50% off, folks. That's 5-0. It's a fantastic deal. 50% off and use the promo code B-U-C-K. That's Buck at checkout. Go to StrikeForceEnergy.com, receive 50% off with the promo code B-U-C-K. Well, certainly China is not prepared for a long-term struggle with the United States. And the Chinese know that. The only way they can win this trade war is if they bluff President Trump down. And by the way, it's not really a trade war now. It's a tech war. Because we're talking about tariffs that are imposed under Section 301 of the Trade Act of 1974 to remedy China's theft of U.S. intellectual property. That theft runs in the hundreds of billions of dollars a year. And if you don't like the tariffs, China, you know, then just stop stealing our stuff. Our man Gordon Chang there laying it down earlier today. You know, this is one of the stories that gets nowhere near as much attention as it should right now. And why is that? Oh, that's right. Because it's positive for Trump. What a shock. Uh, but the the so-called trade war is already moving in America's favor. And what we're finding out is that China has suffered a three-month export downturn as Donald Trump's tariffs have, have taken effect against them. And the, the truth is that there's a, a recognition now that didn't really exist before among a lot of people in this country that, wait a second, 
why why do we act? And this really this goes to the heart of Obamaism. I've got I've got a lot to say on this one, but why do we act like we have a weak hand when it comes to dealing with the Chinese? Why? Why do we think that the that, that we if we were to upset China, they'd be able to just tank our economy and they would be fine? America is number one. We have the strongest economy in the world. The Chinese have been engaged in some very uh, deceptive, dishonest, unfair trade practices for a long time. We're just supposed to allow that to happen. Where is the sense in that? And this is, it's a revelation, folks. You know, we had for eight years of the Obama administration, we had a president whose approach to every foreign policy challenge revolved around a few fundamentally false ideas, like the U.S. is more or less a problem in world affairs. We do some good things, but on on balance, we create more problems than we fix, and we have things to be sorry for. We need to be more humble. We need to ask permission and ask forgiveness. And that was really the way the Obama administration approached a lot of foreign policy problems. And on the economy, there was in the background always this thought with Obama and and his advisors uh, in dealing with any foreign policy economic issue that America had exploited the world in some way, right? That that the same the same idea that, you know, the fat cats and the rich here in America are are to blame for the problems of the poor, true leftists in the Obama ideological mold think that America's prosperity has come directly at the expense of other countries. So really, we have to make amends for that. We have to make global reparations. And that's what ties into our uh, the push the Obama administration had for, for example, climate change, right? Climate change, as the left sees it, isn't just about saving the planet. It's also about, about a massive transfer of wealth from developed first world nations to poor or developing nations. And that's essentially us paying them and transferring massive amounts of wealth to other countries because we've exploited the global environment so much. And, you know, we, we need to essentially, like I said, pay reparations, make amends. We, we need to, to buy off the rest of the developed world. Meanwhile, China and India are laughing at us over this. They're just like, these guys are idiots. Right. But but Obama always took that approach, and you saw on trade such ossified thinking. I mean, it was such an echo chamber, and and I I remember approaching this with you, and and I really appreciated that all of you listening to the show, you were willing to even you know those of you who are much much more um, economically minded or much more into you know study the economy than I am. I, I was not an economist by trade or in, in school. This is. Really, my areas of primary interest are national security and politics. The economy is third, but I'm learning as much. I'm an autodidact on the economy. I'm learning as much as I can. And I just thought, wait, hold on a second. When everyone's saying something, I actually get a little suspicious. When you know, when it comes to an issue like the economy or trade or something, I said, hold on. Why are we all saying that? You know, it's all we, we're free traders. What does that mean? You know, when people can't answer a question without becoming hostile, then you should ask more questions. And Trump, because he came at this from the perspective of somebody who didn't care what the consensus thought of him or his ideas, was able to keep pushing, even though there was so much headway. And now we're seeing what the Chinese, oh, wait a second. If this is a game of chicken, they're going to pull off the road first. Um, 
And the uh, the Chinese Ministry of Commerce, for example, is this is according to a Politico today is anxiously watching the tariff development in the U.S. Quote, if the U.S. goes ahead with the two billion two hundred billion dollar plan, the impact on Chinese exports will be material, said the source who declined to be named. The leading export indicator fell into the contraction zone from June when the Trump administration announced tariffs on $50 billion of Chinese merchandise. You know, one of the reasons I like to look at the market as an indicator of what's really going on on foreign policy is because the the market is where people, they, they can't hide what they're really doing or really thinking. Uh, the market has its own way of speaking. And if, if people were really, if it wasn't just Trump hatred pushing a lot of this, oh my gosh, trade war talk, you would see that reflected in what people were doing with their money. Right, because I don't care how you know ideologically committed you are as a leftist, you don't want to risk your life savings, you don't want to risk your four hundred one k or or your entire stock portfolio if you really believe that we are heading for a massive economic decline because of what Trump is doing. And instead of heading for massive decline, it seems like the sky's the limit for the first time. Which, when you take a true free market capitalist approach. Uh, then it also seems to make sense. Why should there be an, a, an upper limit here? Why shouldn't America just continue to get wealthier as we innovate and become more efficient and we make more progress in our technology? And, you know, we should be getting wealthier all the time. And I know that's happening, but we have this idea of the cyclical nature of wealth creation in this country. And I know some of you are like, Buck, read The Creature for Jekyll Island, and which is a great book, by the way. And, you know, the Fed boom bust cycle. Yeah, I know that's all still very real, but that doesn't really that doesn't have to be our reality. It only has been our reality because of some monetary policies, because of the way the government has been intruding on the market and and a whole bunch of other factors. But we could be into a we are already are in a period of unparalleled economic uh, growth in terms of where the stock market is now and, and, and how long it's overall. If you go back now for. Uh, for many years, how long it's been going in an upward trajectory. So there, there's a lot of really good stuff here. And and on China, there was so much, fe- I, I just have to remember, there was so much fear mongering around this. I mean, there was such, such a discussion about how Trump was going to destroy the global economy and oh, how could he and all these terrible things were going to happen. And now we're hearing more about how, yeah, China's feeling it. And you know what, folks? China could just stop its predatory trade practices and we could have normalized free trade relations with China. And maybe that would also push the Chinese government more towards, uh, you know, openness and transparency. And you know, there could be even some long term political benefits from all of this. Look, I know there can be there all there's a thousand ways this whole thing can go south or go wrong. I get it. I'm not saying there's no risk. There is risk. But we weren't told there was risk. We were told there was the certainty of catastrophe. And Trump has swatted that aside by just taking a common sense approach. Isn't one of the great benefits of the Trump administration, look, the great benefit of President Trump himself, for whatever faults and personal flaws or idiosyncrasies or whatever you want to talk about, Trump is somebody who is finally, and how many of us have thought this for a long time, why can't we have somebody who is our president, somebody who's a political leader, who just uses common sense? It just thinks, what would a normal person who approaches this problem think about the problem, and how would that person try to solve it? 
Not what do all the smart people say and what do all the different special interests come at this with and what's the history of the social justice that surrounds... No. What would a normal common sense approach be? He's doing that on a whole bunch of issues and, oh my gosh, like magic, it's working. Is there going to be a trade war with China? I don't know. But so far what we have is trade victory looming when it comes to our relationship with China and nobody was calling for that six months ago. You know what can be really frustrating? When you're making smart decisions, you're doing everything you should for your business, but you can't get critical answers back from trusted partners, right? You need somebody doing background investigations for your business, or if you're a property owner, you need somebody who can look into your tenant's background and make sure you're renting to somebody that you can trust. And you need answers fast. You need people that are very on the ball and aren't outsourcing your information to somebody else. So when you call them, they're saying, oh, well, let's get the answers from some other party. No, no, no. You want the answers right away. Global Verification Network is your answer. They have expert delivery of high quality screening services for employers, property managers, and financial companies. You should really check them out. They should become your First choice, your first option for background investigations, go to mygvn.com. Again, that's mygvn.com or call 855-960-5318. First man to walk on the moon. That'd be something. We've chosen a job so difficult, requiring so many technological developments. We're going to have to start from scratch. Only after we master these tasks do we consider trying to land on the moon. Neil, if this flight is successful, you'll go down in history. What kind of thoughts do you have about that? We're planning on the flight being successful. The vehicle's not safe. We need to fail down here so we don't fail up there. This isn't just another trip, Neil. Do you think you're coming back? There are risks, but we have every intention of coming back. Here we go. Six, five, four, three, two. Now there you have the trailer for First Man, which automatically feels a little bit like the patriarchy, right? I mean, I kid, of course. Or do I? This is a, a, a biopic of Neil Armstrong, right? Man, the first man to land on the moon. And you would think that this is the kind of movie that, but just based on the storyline, come on, it's not going to be political, right? It's going to be a, an inspiring film about a great American achievement. That's right. This was achieved by the United States of America, by a whole lot of people working on the program, by the brave astronauts who went up there. But... If you thought that it would just be a recreation of history uh, with some dramatic flair, you would be incorrect, folks. That's right. Uh, this movie, which stars Ryan Gosling as Neil Armstrong, has a little omission in it. Remember that whole thing about the first man on the moon? That When you think of it, what, what do you picture in your mind? Some of you are like, a soundstage because they faked it. No, no, stop that. They did not fake it. How do I know? Well, I don't know. Smart people tell me they didn't fake it. Uh, but no, really, when you think back to it, there's the moonscape from the surface of the moon. There's a an astronaut. And what else is what else is in that photo, folks? What else is there? All oh, right. A big American flag. 
on the moon. You know what they decided to take out of this movie in that iconic moment? The American flag. That's right, folks. Ryan Gosling, who's a Canadian, eh? Uh, he, he was uh, asked about this one. And he said, quote, I think this was widely regarded in the end as a human achievement, and that's how we chose to view it. I also think Neil was extremely humble, as were many of these astronauts, and time and time again, he deferred the focus from himself to the, uh, the 400,000 people who made the mission possible. He was reminding everyone that he was just the tip of the iceberg, and that's not just to be humble, that's also true. So I don't think that Neil viewed himself as an American hero, from my interviews with his family and people that knew him, it was quite the opposite, and, he, and we wanted the film to reflect Neil. I mean, give me a break. You know, I don't care what his family thinks. You know, this is, this is a, where, where we might have a little bit of a, of a digression here or a little bit of a um, divergence. That's the word I was looking for, not a digression, pardon me. A little bit of a divergence because the guy put the American flag on the moon. The whole program, the, he, he wouldn't have been in a position to take the, you know, one small step for man. And, you know, he wouldn't even be in a position to do that if it weren't for the United States of America. There was a whole other group of folks that were trying to put their flag on the moon first. That's right. The Soviet Union. We all, we all know about that, right? Now, you could say, Buck, who cares? Hollywood's full of libs, which, of course, is true. But here's why I care. This is something you're going to see more of, folks. And it already exists, but now there's finally the, the uh, means and mechanisms in place for us to push back against it because we can do our own fact-checking. We all have access to the internet and we are able to fight back against these lies. Rewriting of history is something that libs love to do. It's really actually very Soviet in nature, speaking of the Soviet Union. Uh, the rewriting of history, the Soviets, in fact, went to such extreme length that in their archives, they were known to use razor blades to remove the names of people in official documents that they wanted to disappear by actually excising the name. So the, the Soviets took revision of history to a whole a whole other level, and they did keep pretty meticulous documentation and notes. One thing that communists and statists love is bureaucracy. But the notion of rewriting history in general because it's a more appealing or useful or socially justice-conscious narrative today is happening all the time. Uh, I, I think about this with the way that they often teach, for example, the, uh, the colonization period of not just North America, but uh, Central and South America as well. And, you know, the, the Aztecs, I'll often, I just finished this great book on the Aztecs and, and the conquest uh, and the defeat of Montezuma by uh, Hernan Cortez. And they want to talk about how advanced some aspects of the civilization were of the, that the Aztecs had. What they don't really want to talk about as much is that the Aztec Empire was built on a massive, on a massive pile of skulls uh, from human sacrifice, which was a, a constant ritual. And really was the was a was central to the religious beliefs of the Aztecs, and, and also incredible slavery and brutality of other peoples. Um, but that's a other native peoples. You know that that gets brushed aside. The same way that when we talk about the slave trade today, we, we all know about the transatlantic American or the slave trade to the Americas. 
Uh, we know much less in history about the Islamic slave trade, which involved almost entirely the enslavement of Christians, uh, particularly European white Christians, by Muslim North African slave traders uh, into sexual slavery, into horrific uh, work in quarries and in other inhumane conditions until they died on the, on the uh, slave ships where galleys were used in warfare as well as in transport. People would just be kept at the oar until they essentially died of exhaustion. Uh, th- that That's all skipped around, and it's because people don't want the real facts. You know, the, the left has this idea that they are trying to promote a utopian society, and in doing so, they're willing to rewrite the past in order to write the future. And we need to be on guard against this. If we're going to study history, if we're going to celebrate the past, even in what is loosely based in uh, in truth or even in what is you know inspired by true events, we should be aware of the full story. And little things like this, removing the American flag from a movie about the American landing on on the moon is something that's easy to dismiss, but it's part of a, of a broader mindset. And it's one that we need to call out because it's become far too prevalent on the left. And in their depiction of things in, in, in history, they are often rewriting it. And I think that's something that we just cannot, can't let it stand. You know, do we really care about this Ryan Gosling movie? No. I mean, have there been far too many movies, in my opinion, already made about, you know, going to the moon and all that stuff? Uh, probably. But we will continue to keep an eye on this and, and watch this because I think it's I think it's a yet another case where the left is making a conscious decision to try to pretend the past was different than it was. And we're not going to let them get away with it. Rock and roll, fellow patriots. Time to spread some freedom coast to coast. It's time for Roll Call. It's going to be our last Roll Call before the holiday weekend. As I've been saying, don't worry about the Marxist origins of this uh, Labor Day weekend. Labor Day. Remember, if you work for a union and are a union rep, it's Labor Day. Like L-A-B-U-H. Labor Day. Uh, That's right. I'm from the Northeast. I can say stuff like this. So... Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. By the way, the Jesse Kelly and Buck Sexton and Sean Parnell Freedom Hut extravaganza, uh, the Freedom Hut podcast is out. You just have to go on iTunes, folks. Okay, go on your Apple iTunes, type in the Buck Sexton show, and in that feed there with all the all the stuff that pops up, it'll say Freedom Hut, and I believe it's uh, Two Door Kickers and a Desk Ninja is the title of it. They're obviously the Door Kickers, and I'm the Desk Ninja. Hiya! That's why I do Buck Slaps. Um, and I really think you'll enjoy, even if you're not generally a podcast listener, I think you'll really enjoy that show for this weekend. It's about 30 minutes. We're just shooting the stuff, man. Have, we have a lot of fun. I really like both those guys. They're both real, uh, real talents and, and great patriots and great friends. So I, I think you'll enjoy it. Just, just put it on, just give it a shot. It's very, a little different than what we do here in the freedom hut. A little more, a little more, um, what's the word? Uh, relaxed in tone a little less in-depth uh philosophy than we than i tend to do here on this show so i think you'll really enjoy it again it's on itunes uh it should also be on stitcher.com or you can listen to it on the iheart app 
All right, we have first up TJ. Buck, listen to your show from last night when you talked about your interview with Alyssa Milano. I watched the Hill.TV interview, and I definitely agree with you that she did not know who was interviewing her, especially when she kept saying we, our, and us. I'm pretty sure she was referring to Democrats and or Californians and just assumed that you were one of them. Way to slip under the radar and expose her uh, for the leftist she is. I hope that the interview finale is where you tell her who you are and how you filled in for Rush Limbaugh before so we could watch her head explode figuratively, of course. P.S. Maybe this interview is why your wiki page was deleted so she couldn't look you up. God knows a liberal won't look past the first page of Google search when doing a little pre-interview research. You know, I don't know why my Wikipedia... I don't know why my Wikipedia was deleted. I had a Wikipedia page. It's a nice little Wikipedia page. It's gone now. I don't understand. What did I do to offend the Wikipedia gods? Anyway, TJ, thanks for writing in. Drew writes, I'm a podcast listener. But anyways, the movie quote was from Black Hawk Down, Shields High. Well, look at you, Drew. You are correct, sir. Limo is a word in common usage. It's from the very early scenes of Black Hawk Down where they're discussing a Scrabble dispute. Black Hawk Down, I think, is, is it really holds up. A great, a great movie uh, for what it is. I really enjoyed it. Seth writes, I really miss the Alyssa Milano from Commando. In the spirit of Friday, get to the chopper. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I, I agree. I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, the original Alyssa Milano. In, although that, get to the choppers from Predator. Uh, so we've got to, you know, if we're going to keep it 100, get to the choppers from Predator. Indeed, get to the chopper. All right, uh, let's get back into roll call, folks. I'm sorry to get distracted there. You know what happens with the movie quotes. I all of a sudden find myself in the midst of uh, reminiscing about my youth spent watching, as you know, a lot of action movies. uh, Maybe we'll bring back Action Movie Quote Friday. It's been a while. You know, I kind of faded out with it, but I kind of like it. Uh, Martha writes, I would like to know who is paying for the a uh, five-day funeral that the McCain planned for uh, months ahead of himself. Um, uh, Martha, I don't know. I would assume, I mean, the McCain family's very wealthy. I, I actually have no idea. I, I couldn't answer that question. Uh, so apologies for not having the answer on, on hand. Um, Shmuel writes, hi, Buck. This is Shmuel from Israel. I live in Israel, and I'm interested but not passionate about U.S. politics. So I'm confused why Steele, a British national, would be so desperate to see Trump lose. I can understand why an American citizen would be passionate about the election results, but a British citizen? Was he concerned that Trump was pro-Brexit? Seriously, something smells here. Could it be he was desperate because someone, Russians or Hillary, were paying him and or threatening him to get the job done or else? Love to hear your thoughts on this. Perhaps you can write an article about it. Shmuel! Hey, Shmuel, good to, good to talk to you, man. A team Buck Israel in the house. Uh, why would Steele... No, you know, I, I think that Steele is part of this mentality, Shmuel, that the, the kind of global establishment order was threatened by Trump. I, I do think that there are people, especially the elites in Western European countries, find that Trump was a political phenomenon and Trumpism was one that they thought concerned them too. Uh, that they had their own worries about, you know, how all that was was going to go, and um, that's why somebody. And now, look, Steele. It might also have been for personal reasons. Maybe he just found Trump very odious. 
I don't think that anyone had anything on Steele to push him into this. I just think that in his mind, he was doing probably not just America, but the world some great service by trying to uh, throw a monkey wrench into the Trump campaign. So there you have that. Brandon, Blackhawk Down. Yes, Blackhawk Down also got the uh, movie quote. So you're correct, Brandon. Um, Brandon also wrote, my buck 15 black rifle coffee arrived just in time. Hope you uh, didn't take offense the other day when I said that as a bald guy, I don't like the swoop. Brandon, nobody has to like the swoop. This is America. So the swoop is uh, totally up to, up to you how much you like or don't like it. Uh, Rob writes, hi, Buck. Talk about Mark Rich tomorrow. Bill Clinton pardoned him after he fled the country. He hid millions of money. Shields high, brother. Well, yeah, Mark Rich, Rob, was somebody whose wife was a major Democrat donor, and he fled justice and was pardoned. That's very rare. Uh, usually you have to at least be in the country. Uh, I don't think I don't know if that's ever happened before, actually. I, I can't say that it hasn't, but I'm not aware of someone being pardoned uh, who had fled the country in that way. I mean, maybe the only exception that comes to mind is draft dodgers in Canada. Who, but that was kind of a group pardon, and that was really a policy more than a pardon. So I'm I'm not familiar with a case that's similar to Mark Rich. Just remember, folks, you know who was involved in the Mark Rich pardon? That's right. Eric Holder, everybody. He was the one who signed off on it in Clinton's Department of Justice. It was, in fact, Eric Holder. And uh, he said he felt badly about it, he said later on, but, you know, too late, Eric. Uh, let's see. Thomas writes, Buck, I'm trying to figure out why Ron DeSantis' opponent would be upset. If you listen closely to Ron DeSantis' full response, he's telling the questioner that although it appears he will have a good run, the Republican shouldn't take the election win for granted because his opponent is well-spoken and charismatic, and the Republican should not take it for granted. Um, The media got it totally wrong on this because they didn't hear it. All they heard was what they were looking for from Thomas. You know, Thomas... I don't think the media got it wrong because they didn't hear it. I think the media got it wrong and didn't care. I think the media saw this as an opportunity to trash a Republican. And even though they knew, they knew that what they were doing was dishonest, they figured it was too good an opportunity to pass up. Um, Jim writes, uh, oh, no, that's a short, short message. Keith writes, Buck. DeSantis using monkey up is no more racist than if his opponent said he's going to crush DeSantis like a cracker in soup. Shields high from Keith. Uh, I have never heard of crushing a cracker in soup, so I don't know what that is, but uh, thanks for writing in, Keith. Kyle writes, Buck, in regards to DeSantis's monkey this up quip, If that phrase is supposed to be a dog whistle for racists, as many on the left are asserting, I can't help but notice that those on the left are the ones barking over this. Uh, Seems like an act of psychological projection to me. If you have an unhealthy obsession with a person's race, maybe you're the racist and not the person who uses a common innocuous phrase to describe something. Indeed, Kyle, um, I I, uh, think that they got this very wrong. And I think that the media loves to play the race card even when they have to be dishonest to do it. Uh, and I think that's what we, I really do think that's what we saw here. 
Team, quick, quick pause here. We're going to come back with more roll call. Stay with me. And we're back with some more roll call where we get to hear from all of you. Don't forget the Freedom Hut podcast, folks. It's out. It is me, Sean Parnell and Jesse Kelly. We talk about the greatest Trump memes of all time, the best concealed carry weapon of all time, what qualifies as meat. And of course, we make fun of Hollywood Parnell because he's big time now with a novel coming out. And we got a big announcement about our friend Jesse Kelly and in his career. Uh, so you, you'll want to hear that. They're two great guys. I think it'll be really fun for you to listen to this. And please do share it with some friends. Uh, it's This is something, even people who don't really care much about politics, uh, the, you know, they, they will, I think, enjoy the conversation we had. So uh, spread it around, folks. Bob writes, good evening, Buck. Is Gary Hart's boat now considered racist since it was called monkey business? Have a great weekend. Shields high, Bob. Uh, oh, hey, Bob. I, I've never. I don't know. Who, I don't know about Gary Hart's boat, but I'm pretty sure it's not racist. So there you go. Let's see. Oh, somebody also told me that there's a, a song. Well, there's a bunch. Of, look, monkey business, monkeying around. Hey, hey, we're the monkeys. All that stuff. We know it's not racist. So I think our point. I think our point's been made, team. I think we all get it on that one. Bob writes. Ugh. Stuck in the airport for a few hours, and I'm watching CNN. This is pure torture. I must have seen their promo for the RGB film a hundred times. They're also fawning over Joe Biden's speech at McCain's funeral, almost like they're getting ready to endorse him for president. Well, Bob, let me say this about the the cult of RBG. It's just weird, man. It's just weird. I mean, I'm not trying to be mean, but she's a little old lady, you know, and they're trying to make it seem like she's some kind of folk hero who can do hundreds of push-ups or something. You know, it's just, I mean, eh, I don't get it. I really don't. Uh, you know, I, I don't find Ruth Bader. Like, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The cult of RBG is weird, though. RGB. Did I say RBG? Sorry. RGB is, is weird. Is, wait, no. R, RBG. You wrote RGB, Bob. You're confusing me here. I'm getting, getting my letters all mixed up. Uh... Al writes, ESPN, great X of the double standard, oh, great example of the double standard squared. Um, I guess so. Mud, also known as Matthew, writes, love the show and your view on the weaponization and politicization of McCain's death. Trotting out his patriotism just to beat Trump over the head with it is despicable. To tell you the truth... He was a flyboy with an admiral daddy. Pretty sure he had a free ride until he got himself shot down. Yes, he stayed with his men in the face of further torture, but that's what he was supposed to do. Just like most vets, we did what we signed up for and saw our duty through until the end. Then he didn't want Trump to attend his funeral and lost all of my respect. So there's that, to borrow your hilarious phrase. Cheers and shields high, Matthew. Matthew, appreciate you writing in, and I know people have very passionate views about the legacy of McCain, so I will let you speak for yourself on that one. Uh, Andrew writes, listen to the show, and I can't agree with you more. I make it a point to listen to both sides uh, in a while, and I was on the road for an hour and a half today. I listened to NPR. I was blown away by how uh, political they made Senator John McCain's death. It was constant, and every chance they got, they would bash Trump. I don't understand how they think their stories were unbiased. Yeah, folks, the, the media fawning over McCain is something that they like to do to hit Republicans with. That's what they, that's why they like talking about McCain. That's why they like talking about Trump, uh, Trump versus McCain, all this stuff. It's a weapon against Republicans. So we should be very clear on that. And, and that's just, 
That's what they were doing. Um, hey, Book Shields, I want to tell you an epic journey I just returned home from that took me through for the first time Washington, D.C. There were two people I had hoped to run into so I could give them each a high five for a job well done, but sadly my time grew short and I was forced to leave the swamp without seeing you or POTUS. I know, Tim. Makes me sad, too. Perhaps next time. Until then, virtual high five. Virtual high five accepted, Tim. Uh, if you happen to see the Donald, pass it along, won't you? Also, on the way home to Florida, we stopped overnight in Savannah, just a mile down the road from Nine Line Apparel Black Rifle Coffee, uh, their, their whole facility there, where I got myself a T-shirt and a piping hot cup of Silencer Smooth, wondering if this is the place you made the personal appearance a few months ago. Anyway, I'm an avid podcast listener. Looking forward to the next Shields High episode. Congratulations on the TV show, Tim. Uh, Tim, the answer is yes, that is the facility. And if any of you are ever down there, you should go check it out. The Nine Line Apparel Black Rifle facility in Savannah, Georgia, is quite a sight. And the people who work there are just awesome. You'll love getting a chance to chat with them. The coffee's delicious. The gear is great. Uh, and they're really... It's, it's an amazing setup they've got. They're doing all these designs and all the shirt production and everything else in-house, the gear production in-house, and the coffee is absolutely delicious. It's first rate. And you'll just like it, I'm telling you. It's, it's worth a stop if you're in Savannah. It's about a 20, 15 to 20-minute drive from downtown Savannah. Uh, but go check out that. You know, tell them Buck sent you, and uh, they'll know. They'll know. I hope. I'm just kidding. They'll know. Maybe. Uh, Evan writes, hey, Buck, enjoying uh, catching up on this show with The Godfather. I'm listening to the podcast on, on Apple iPhone. Anyway, I didn't realize this, but apparently you can adjust the speed of play. I bumped it up to 1.5 times the normal rate. It took a second, but I realized and then fixed it. Um, however, you can slow it down. Have you ever listened to Mike Opelka at half the normal speed? It's hilarious. He sounds like a really stoned drunk dude. It's extremely funny. You should check it out. Enjoy your weekend. Well, Evan, I'm not sure that uh, the Godfather sound, you know, is the only extremely stoned drunk dude, <laughs> given what you're telling me about. Yo, I can like slow down the podcast, half speed, double speed. I'm just kidding, Evan. We love you. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm glad you guys enjoyed the Godfather. He, he's, such, he's always been such a good friend and, and he's such a good guy. And I just, I'm, I'm happy that you all get a chance to listen to him and that he'll take the reins of the show whenever I'm, whenever I'm gone and he's able to. Folks, that's going to be it for the Freedom Hut for today. Have a great weekend. I've got huge plans for us. We come back next week. So I will see you then, same time, same place, here in the Freedom Hut. Shields high. The one constant I have every day, folks, is coffee. I absolutely love it. And I keep multiple K-cups of Black Rifle coffee on my desk. Now, not just for me, but I keep those rounds ready to go so that my colleagues at the Hill can make sure they're being fueled with the best caffeinated freedom out there. Go to blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. You'll see that they have all of the different flavor profiles and blends you need and want. They have the Freedom Roast Coffee there, Freedom Blend Coffee Rounds. Also, they've got hats, they've got mugs, all kinds of cool gear. You will love it. Just Black Roast, Silencer Smooth. Uh, Blackbeard's Delight Roast, which is particularly uh, spicy. Go check it out. BlackRifleCoffee.com slash buck. You'll get 15% everything there. Make sure you go to my site, BlackRifleCoffee.com slash buck, and try being a subscriber so they just send the coffee to you every month. You'll have delicious coffee and never have to think about it again.